If you've noticed during the pandemic that you have brain fog, that you can't read or concentrate or think deeply, you are not alone. Many people are struggling with this loss of focus. And my guest on the podcast today says that's been years in the making. He argues that our attention did not just collapse, that it was stolen from us, and that this development has major implications for society. If you're an individual and you can't pay attention, you can't achieve your goals, everything in life becomes harder. But as a society, if we're a society of people who can't pay attention, that's even worse. That produces a real coarsening of the society. New York Times bestselling author Johan Hari is one of my favorite writers. His book, Chasing the Scream, profoundly changed the way that we think about the war on drugs and addiction. His next, Lost Connections, was a similar game changer on the issues of anxiety and depression. This week, he's back with a new title, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. In it, Johan outlines 12 forces that have reduced our ability to focus, and many of them will surprise you. How to Reclaim Our Minds, that's today on Lean Out with my guest, British author Johan Hari. Johan Hari, welcome to Lean Out. Oh, Tara, I'm so happy to be with you. I, the last time I saw you was in a cafe in London, so I feel sad that we're gazing at each other through screens, but it's lovely to see you nonetheless. <laughs> Indeed. Well, good to see you as well. And when, when we were in that cafe in London, we were talking that day, you had just done a digital detox in Provincetown, <laughs> and you were saying, I'm starting to write about it. You'll learn more about it later. I've now read the book, which is fabulous and such a breath of fresh air. Oh, thank you. Talk to me a little bit about the state of mind that you were in that led you to unplug from the world for three months. You know, for a long time, I had this sort of subject about attention and focus was really nagging at me. I really resisted writing about it. I would see these stray studies that seemed to suggest something was going really wrong. You know, the average college student now focuses on any one task for 65 seconds. The average office worker now focuses on any one, on any one task for three minutes. And I felt like that matched with the reality of what I was seeing around me. I felt like I and the people I knew were at some level fracturing. That I could see people were finding it harder to, it's not just, of course, some things that require deep focus, like reading a book have fallen off a cliff, particularly bad for you and me, because we love books. But but I could even just see, it felt like with each year that passed, deep focus, getting into deep focus was more and more like running up a down escalator. But I also told myself, you know, there seem to have been periods in the past when people thought that, you know, a lot of people just get older and blame the world for their own decline. You can read monks a thousand years ago saying that their attention was worse and they were worried about it. And then it was looking at the young people in my life and saying, no, this, there's something really wrong here. I would see lovely, good, decent young people in my family, my godsons, people I loved, and they were just living in this kind of flickering between WhatsApp and YouTube and Snapchat and pornography. It's like they were whirring at the speed of Snapchat. And I thought, I can't bear this anymore. So I didn't think this would be a viable medium-term solution for myself or viable for most people at all, but I, I just couldn't take it anymore. So I went to a little town called Provincetown in Cape Cod and I left my phone and my laptop in Boston. And I went there for, for three months and for 
three months, it was a week short of three months. I didn't see the internet and I didn't see, I didn't use a smartphone at all. It was then that I, I learned a lot about what's happening to us. I also learned a lot about the limits of digital detoxes. <laughs> and then I sort of spent, I traveled all over the world from Moscow to Miami to Montreal, interviewing the leading experts in the world about what causes attention problems to try to understand what I'd experienced in Provincetown and what all of us are experiencing. And most importantly, how we solve this crisis. Mm. And I do want to ask you a little bit about what you experienced. I mean, in Provincetown, it's such a fantasy for people who are work like we work and are caught in this crazy cycle. <laughs> that is the ultimate fantasy. What was the actual experience like on the ground to be unplugged for three months? It was a really strange experience. Have you been to Provincetown, Tara? You no. know, so Provincetown is, for people who don't know it, it's in Cape Cod. So it's basically a kind of sandbar in the middle of the ocean. And it used to be a sort of working class Portuguese immigrant town. And then it got taken over by artists. And now it's basically a gay destination. To give you a sense of what Provincetown is like, there is more than one person in Provincetown living in a fisherman's cottage whose full-time job is to dress as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid, and sing songs about cunnilingus, right? More than one. <laughs> I remember when I arrived, I remember taking the boat. I got the boat from Boston Harbour to, to Provincetown, the ferry. I remember feeling this sort of, I was so tired from all the distractions. And I remember feeling this sort of haze of decompression. And for the first week or so, just wandering around, almost feeling like I was floating with this sense of relief. But then the second week, I realized, it's funny, I had having had that week of just not expecting myself to focus because I was so tired. In that second week, I found myself feeling quite angry because it's like, okay, you've arrived in paradise. You're ready to focus. But actually, I was still sort of skimming. I couldn't slow my tempo down. I remember reading David Copperfield, the Dickens novel, and, and literally just going, almost saying out loud, okay, I've got it. I've got it, Dickens. He's an orphan. Get on with it right? Which of course is an insane way to read a novel. That's your point. <laughs> exactly. Come on, come on. Give me the lead. Give me the lead. And then that leached out of me. And I was, for the first time in my adult life, I was living within the limits of my attention. I was not being bombarded and I was able to really slow down. And I was amazed by how rapidly my attention came back, how I, I was like when I was a teenager and I could just read books all day. And I thought, oh, bliss, this is going to be an amazing summer. And then three weeks in, I remember the day exactly. I woke up and like every morning, I instinctively reached for my phone at the side of the bed. And I didn't have my smartphone. I had a ridiculously big, chunky, the only phone you can buy in the US that doesn't access the internet. It's called the Jitterbug. And it, it, it's for really old people. It doubles as a medical device. So when I bought it, I realized that there's a button where I could push and it would automatically call the nearest hospital to tell them I'd fallen over. That was the only, that, that was its special feature, right? There was no, no other special feature. And that morning I woke up and I walked out and I was walking down the beach and I saw this thing that has been driving me crazy for years, which is people, so many people in so many places cannot be present. They're seeing wherever they are, including like Promistown is one of the most beautiful places in the world. They're seeing it as a backdrop to pose in, to set, post pictures on Instagram. It's almost like it's a stage set, you know, like those towns that are built by movie studios to be the old West or whatever. It was like that, right? 
they were not present. They were constantly looking at their phones. There were parents with children who were just constantly on their phones. And every other time I'd seen that, I was like, oh, this is the problem. That day I was like, give me that phone. I want it. Me, me. Because if you live the way we have been living for a while now, you live your life with this constant wave of the kind of thin, insistent reinforcements of the current social media design, likes, hearts. And when that's taken away, this is an extremely pretentious way to say it. But when that's taken away, I thought of this thing that Simone de Beauvoir said once, that when she became an atheist, it was like the world had gone silent. That's how it felt, like the world had gone silent. And I realized removing these distractions in and of itself, it had real value. But that had created a vacuum because we've become so used to finding a certain kind of rudimentary meaning in those distractions that then I had to really find my meaning again. And that's when I explored the science of flow states. I, I interviewed later Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, the amazing scientist who sadly just died, who did an incredible amount of work on this. And I looked at lots of different aspects then of how in that situation, freed of distractions, I could begin to focus again. But it took, it was a sort of bumpy journey. And then once I found my source of flow, then I had really two months of just really deep, the deepest focus I've ever had in my adult life. And it was mm. incredible. And, and it was such a relief because there were periods when I was so distracted before when I thought, oh God, I've just broken my brain, right? And actually to realize it could all come back and I could feel more mentally powerful than I ever had was incredible. And I remember the last day I was in Provincetown just thinking, well, that's it. I found the solution then. You know, I'll, I'll just use this stuff less and Literally within two weeks, I was as bad as I'd been the day before I went. And I remember going to interview in Moscow, Dr. James Williams, who's an, a leading expert on attention. He's a former Google engineer, an amazing person. I remember him saying to me, look, Johan, you, you've made a fundamental mistake here. A digital detox is not the solution to this problem. For the same reason that wearing a gas mask a couple of days a week isn't the solution to air pollution. Now, gas masks might give you some relief. I'm, obviously, I'm not opposed to gas masks but we have to actually deal with the source of the problem. And that's when I realized, oh, this is or when I began to realize oh, this is a systemic problem mm. and it requires, of course, there are individual things we can do. And I talk a lot about them in Stolen Focus, but it also requires big solutions, right? It's like someone is pouring itching powder on us all day. And then the person pouring itching powder is saying to us, you know, you might want to learn to meditate. You wouldn't scratch so much then, right? And yeah, I'm in favor of meditation, but someone needs to stop them pouring the itching powder on us, right? Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I'm going to ask you just for listeners, just to set this up first, I want to drill down on some of the particular causes, sure. but can you just start by mentioning the different causes that you look at in this book? I mean, one thing that was really interesting to me and was not what I expected at the start was actually the contribution that tech is playing to our attention problem is more complex than it seems. And actually in a funny way, more easily solved at a social level than I thought at first. But more surprisingly, tech is actually only one of these 12 causes. And I actually don't think it's the biggest. I think there are bigger causes, bigger changes that have happened in the way we live. But I'll give you one example that when I learned about it, it made sense of why I experienced such relief in Provincetown. I went to interview one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, a man named Professor Earl Miller, who's at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you need to understand about the human brain more than anything else. 
you can only think about one thing at a time. That's it. This is just a fundamental limitation of the human brain. You can think consciously about one thing at a time. The human brain has not significantly changed in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change on any imminent timetable. But most people, actually most young people now believe they can follow seven different forms of media at the same time. Professor Miller explained, when you think you're following seven things at the same time, what actually is happening is you're juggling. You're switching very rapidly between these things. Now your consciousness papers over that. You think you're just doing one thing or, or it's happening seamlessly. But actually that comes with a really big series of costs to your attention and your ability to think. There's really four of them. The first is called the switch cost effect. So, you know, we're talking now, you could have underneath your laptop where I can't see, you could have your phone and you could glance at your text messages, right? I wouldn't know. And you might think, oh, I can look at my text message. It takes two seconds, right? But what happens is you look at your text message, you think you have to refocus your mind. Oh, my friend Jess has texted me. Oh, that must mean her mum's got out of hospital. Oh, okay, right. You've got to focus on that. Then you've got to come back to me. What's your hand saying again? Oh, that refocusing takes a large amount of mental energy. The second thing that happens is what I would call a kind of screw up effect. When you switch between things, you start to make mistakes and then you have to go back and correct those mistakes. The third thing is when you're switching between things mentally, you remember much less of what you experience. This is because translating your experiences into memories takes a certain amount of mental energy. And if your brain is just jammed up with what was just saying on WhatsApp, what's that person saying on, on Facebook? Oh, wait, what's, what's he saying to me through my laptop? What's on the TV over there? If you're just jammed up with that, your brain has less space to do that. The fourth effect is that you become less creative over time because your brain can't think freely. It can't make associations. It's just jammed up, right? And these are really significant effects. I mean, one study found that being chronically distracted is twice as bad for your IQ and attention as getting stoned. So you'd be better <laughs> off, what the study found is you'd be better off sitting at your desk. One of the implications of the study is you'd be better off sitting at your desk smoking a fat spliff, but only doing one thing than sitting at your desk without a spliff, but trying to do loads and loads of things at once, right? So we're all living with this profound degradation of our attention it's such a great, I mean, sometimes the phrase multitasking is used, but I deliberately don't use that because I actually don't think we even think of it as multitasking if we check our phones while we're doing other stuff. Multitasking, I picture like a 90s sitcom where a mom is like trying to feed her baby while doing a work call. Actually, I don't think if you checked your text now, you would think of that as doing another task even, right? Mm. Any more than like scratching your head would seem like multitasking. So, I mean, that's one of the ways in which our attention is being stolen from us. Mm, there's there were so many in the book that surprised me. I mean, one of the things that I that I wanted to talk about was was stress and the work of Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. I've oh, read her book that. as well. Just fascinating. Amazing. What did you learn from her about stress and attention and focus? Oh, so much. Nadine is a truly extraordinary woman. So she's now the Surgeon General of California. Mm. So Nadine, Nadine was a little girl in Palo Alto in California. And when she was growing up, she used to go home from school. I feel quite frightened the way she put it is she didn't know she was coming home to happy mom or, or scary mom. So Nadine's mother uh, had paranoid schizophrenia. And although her mother was very loving and a really admirable woman, you know, because of her mental illness, she could be sometimes very frightening. And Nadine coped with that by being an absolute like grade A student. You know, she became, you know, she went to Harvard Medical School. She did, I mean, she's a phenomenon. When she left, she wanted to help people like the scared girl she had been. So she got a job in Bayview, which is one of the last 
non-gentrified parts of the Bay Area. A very violent area. In fact, I think on her second day there, she had to help a 17-year-old boy who had been shot and, and actually died. Very frightening, you know, like grandmothers sleep in bathtubs in Bayview because they're scared of stray bullets coming through the window. And Nadine started to work in a clinic for children and young people. And she noticed something that really disconcerted her, which was that a staggering number of the children there had been diagnosed with ADHD, vastly more than in wealthy areas. And she was kind of a bit disconcerted by this, wanted to look into it more. So she she started to speak to lots of the patients, the kids and their parents. There's one boy, I'm going to call him Robert. That's She obviously didn't tell me his real name to protect his medical confidentiality. He was 14. He'd been on Ritalin for a while. He really hated it. And he comes in with his mother. And Nadine starts talking about, well, what were the circumstances where he started to take this? He started to have tension problems. It took a while to get to it, but actually it was a very extreme situation. One day his mother had come home and found her boyfriend sexually abusing her son in the shower. And the mother had been sexually abused herself. And she didn't feel she had the courage to confront this man. So she was deeply ashamed of this, but she she sent Robert to go and live with his dad. But he still came home every weekend to his mother. And of course, in that situation, Robert went into a state that Nadine and other scientists have called hypervigilance. So when you're safe, it makes perfect sense to focus on the thing in front of you, like your math homework or whatever. When you're stressed or in danger, you can flip into a state called vigilance or hypervigilance in extreme situations where your attention flips. You're no longer focusing on the thing in front of you. You're scanning the horizon for dangers and risks, right? For perfectly understandable reasons. If you were attacked tomorrow by a bear, for weeks and months afterwards, you would be scanning the horizon unconsciously or consciously for signs of another bear, right? Nadine realized that in this situation, what Robert needed was not to be pathologized. Of course, it's not the case with all children who've been diagnosed with ADHD, but he didn't need to be pathologized. What he needed is safety. So what she did is they got a lot of psychological support for the mother. They managed to get a restraining order on the abuser and for him to be reported to the police. And they gave Robert and his mother just a huge amount of support so they could connect with each other. They did so they could connect with their own bodies. And over time, his attention problems reduced. Now, that's a very extreme form of stress, sexual abuse. Of course, what Nadine discovered in Bayview, they tested all the kids who worked with them and they measured the level of childhood trauma they'd been experienced. What she found, and it's a staggering finding, is that if you had experienced four categories of childhood trauma, you were 34.6 times more likely to present with attention problems than people who'd experienced no categories of childhood trauma. I mean, just a staggering figure, which is, mm. that's a high end, but there are other findings which show that there's a similar effect. So I wanted to know, well, does normal stress, a more normal form of stress, also damage your attention? And the evidence is really clear that absolutely it does. Financial stress, partly because it makes you sleep less, which is absolutely essential for attention. And there's a lot of really interesting science about that that I learned. And partly because it triggers vigilance and anxiety, which are absolutely invidious to, to attention. So, I mean, I'm sure we could all think of a stressful event that's happened in the last two years, right? I think it's one of the reasons why so many people are reporting serious attention problems. There's been a more than 300% increase in Google searches for things like, how do I get my brain to focus? Then mm. we can see. So basically stress shatters attention. And one of the other ways we know this is that policies that reduce stress improve attention. So in New Zealand, I went to a company 
called Perpetual Guardian that had moved to a four-day working week with the same pay, they experienced a radical improvement in their attention, which has been found everywhere where people move to a four-day week because they're less stressed. They've got more time to sleep. They've got more time to see their kids. They're just not they're just not ricocheting all the time from one work stress to another. In Finland, so I interviewed scientists in Finland who Finland did an experiment with a universal basic income where they chose a load of people and gave them 650 US dollars a month. And one of the things they found was the people on that program, their attention dramatically improved, their focus mm. and attention dramatically improved. So anything that reduces stress improves attention. Mm -hmm. I found that one so interesting. I mean, you grew up working class. I grew up working class. Mm. Anyone who's grown up that way knows that financial stress can cut your attention immediately, which is a point that you make in the book, right? That exactly. There's, mm -hmm. there's an amazing guy, Professor Sundal uh, Malal Nathan, did a really interesting study of Indian sugarcane farmers. So basically, obviously, it's a seasonal thing, sugarcane harvesting. And he tested their IQ and attention at the start of the sugarcane harvest when they're broke, and at the end of the sugarcane harvest when they've got quite a lot of money by their standards. And at the end, they had they scored 13 IQ points higher than they had at the start, right? Everyone knows, if anyone who's ever been broke knows, you are constantly, it shatters your attention because you flip into vigilance. And it's interesting, the way uh, Nadine, and there's a really interesting guy called Dr. John Giardini, who's a brilliant child psychologist in Adelaide in Australia, where I interviewed him, said, you know, it's not that you're not paying attention. It's that your attention flips to trying to detect dangers. So if you're broke, if the washing machine breaks, if the car breaks, if your kid loses his shoe, you are screwed, right? You're always one minor disaster away from just not knowing what to do next. So what in fact happens, it's not that you're not paying attention, but your attention flips to trying to detect those problems. If you're a middle-class person and your child loses their shoe, right, it's a pain, you get another pair of shoes. If your attention has to go, no, if we lose that shoe, I don't know what we do. I don't know how to send you to school tomorrow. You can see that. And of course, there are many sources of stress. They're not only on working class people, but mm. but you really see that. And I think obviously the stress of the pandemic has been at many, many levels. Mm. And I do want to get to the pandemic later. I also wanted to ask you about nutrition. That was the one I found the most surprising in the book. Uh, talk, talk to me a little bit about that from a one sugar addict to... <laughs> <laughs> You know, I feel like such a fraud talking about this. You can't see this, but there is literally a McDonald's bag in the corner of this room. But the, uh... That's all right. I'm about to have a so, brownie and uh, my third, fourth coffee of the day. So, I mean, I um, yeah, I would. Uh, I read this biography of Elvis that said that in the last year of his life, a doctor would come and inject caffeine directly into his veins every morning. And my friend who I was with, I said this to her, she said, that's terrible. I said, terrible. That's amazing. Where do I get that doctor? And, and she said, what happened to Elvis next? And I was like, oh yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> it's really interesting. Of the 12 factors that I learned about, food is the one that most surprised me. Although when you when you see the evidence, actually it's very intuitive, but it just, it would never have occurred to me. It took, it's quite a long way into the process. I started interviewing these people who are called nutritional psychiatrists. So essentially the way we eat has radically changed. We now eat in a way that no previous humans have ever eaten. We eat an enormous amount in fact, most of what we eat now in Canada, the US and Britain is processed or ultra processed food. And there's three ways in which the way we currently eat damages our attention. The first is that it causes energy spikes and energy crashes. And when your energy crashes, you experience brain fog. So Dr. Dale Pinnock, who's the leading nutritionist in Britain, said to me, you know, if you put rocket fuel into a mini, it would go really quickly for a few minutes and then completely putter out. 
And we're doing the equivalent of that with our food all the time. If in the morning you have a diet of Frosties and white bread, that gives you a huge release of glucose very quickly. feels great. And then you're sitting at your desk an hour later and your energy just crashes. And what we're doing is we're basically living, a lot of us, me included, on a sort of roller coaster of energy surges, energy crashes, energy surges, energy crashes, disastrous for your ability to pay attention. The second way in which it affects our ability to focus and pay attention is that our diet is lacking some of the key nutrients that are needed for your brain to develop fully. It's a really interesting study by a group of Dutch scientists where they took a bunch of kids and they split them into two groups. And the first was put on what was called an eliminationist diet. So it basically cut out all the processed food and all the synthetic dyes and everything that we eat. And the second group of kids just carried on eating normally in inverted commas. And the kids on the eliminationist diet, 70% of them had an improvement in their attention. And the average amount their attention improved was 50%. Extraordinary. The third way it affects our ability to focus and pay attention is not just that it's lacking things we need, but a lot of the food we eat contains chemicals which act on us a bit like drugs. There was a study here in Britain in Southampton in 2007. They got a bit like the Dutch experiment. They got a group of kids. It was 297 kids and they split them into two groups. The first group was given a a drink that contained lots of the kind of synthetic dyes that are in the food we eat all the time, things like M&Ms. And the second group were given a drink that didn't contain those synthetic dyes. And then they monitored them. The kids that drunk the synthetic dyes had significantly more mania, attention problems, running around than the other kids, right? So you can see these ways in which the way we eat is really interfering with our normal ability to focus, along with pollution. I mean, Professor Barbara Demony, who's a super prestigious French scientist, she won the Légion d'Honneur, the largest, highest civilian honour in France, said to me, with all the pollution we're exposed to, which inflames your brain, there is no way we can have a normal brain today. That was the sentence she used, which kind of chilled me. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so let that one sink in for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> she said it in a very charming French way, where it was like, and she's so glamorous. So I was just like, you know, there are French people who say glamorous. They could just sort of tell you the world is ending. It was like, but yes, let's have another cigarette while we do it. <laughs> I want to come back to, to the pandemic. As I was reading your book, I was thinking so much about the implications of the pandemic. And I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I couldn't read for months and interviewing a disaster specialist who had gone from disaster to disaster. And she said, this always happens in disasters. People lose the cognitive function and the attention and the focus. Eventually your brain adapts. But talk to me a little bit about how everything you learned kind of came into sharp focus with the pandemic. For me, the biggest thing I learned And it comes back to that thing about this being a social problem. Before I did all this research, when I couldn't pay attention and focus, I would say, Johan, you're being weak. You're being lazy. Why aren't you good enough? Pull yourself together. My reaction was to see it as an individual failing and chastise myself, which I'm sure your listeners can guess didn't get me very far. And to be honest, when I saw young people, the young people I love, I kind of, it wasn't as extreme, but I kind of thought, oh, there's something wrong with this individual that he's doing this all the time, right? Actually, what I learned is this is largely a systemic problem, right? This is happening to all of us to some degree. And COVID really underscored that, right? 
enormous numbers of people, not everyone, but enormous numbers of people experienced what you experienced, right? In the middle of COVID, they just couldn't read a book. Lots of people at the start, like, oh, we're all being sent home. I'll read War and Peace. No one did that, right? <laughs> people really felt their attention shattered. And, and suddenly it, it was a moment which really underscored this to me. What happened? Our environment changed. And as a result, our attention collapsed. Well, that's just another iteration of what actually had been happening in the 30 years prior to that, right? Our environment changed. And our attention was collapsing. Then it underscores that this is an environmental problem to a large degree. And that means that we need to build environmental solutions as well as personal solutions. Now, there are lots of things individuals can do that will improve their attention to some degree. And I talk about lots of them in the book, but we also have to be honest with people and level with them. Those things will only get you so far if we're living in an environment that is militating against attention, in fact, that mm. is systematically destroying attention. And to deal with that, we have to take on the forces that are stealing our focus and get them back. Now that can sound very kind of fancy and high fluting. So I want to, if it's okay, I'll just give you a very concrete example of something that's eminently achievable in Canada that would restore a significant amount of focus. So in France in 2016, the government under pressure from trade unions acknowledged there was a big problem with le burnout, which I don't think you need me to translate. Um, <laughs> and what they, and so they appointed a guy called Bruno Metling, who is the, head of Orange, the, the big, it was at the time the head of Orange, the biggest telecom company in France. And Metling looked at the evidence and, and found that 35% of French workers felt they could never turn their phones off because their boss might call them or email them at any time of day or night. They had to be on top of their email all the time. And so, you know, they, they just couldn't switch their minds off, play with their kids, do whatever they wanted to do. They constantly have a bit of their bandwidth on that. And it was just exhausting people. It was really wearing them out. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, the only people who were on call were doctors and the prime minister. Now, half the economy is on call, right? On unpaid call. So Metling made a proposal that was then passed into law. Very simple proposal. It gives every French citizen the right to disconnect. Well, it's very simply, every worker is entitled to have written and clear work hours, and they are entitled outside work hours to switch off their phone and not be expected to respond to email or respond to phone calls from work. And I went to Paris and talked to people about this. You know, Rent-A-Kill, when I went there, had just been fined 70,000 euros for trying to get one, for telling off one of their workers for not answering, for not responding to an email after outside his work hours, right? So you can see how, to me, there's no point giving people all these sweet self-help lectures, me sitting here going, you know, life is so much better if you don't switch between, if you're not constantly picking up your devices, if you sleep more, if, you, if people can't do that, right? Mm. It's like going up to a homeless person and saying, do you know what would make you feel much better? Would be if you went into that restaurant over there and had a really nice big dinner. It's like they're going to go, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. I can't do that, right? So at the moment, we live in a gap between what we want to do to restore our attention and what we feel we can do. And we've got to deal with that gap, right? And there's lots, of, the right to disconnect is just one of many things we can fight for. And it's not a coincidence France got it because they have organized workers who have trade, they are strongly unionized. Mm. And so their employers have to listen to them in a way that countries that have destroyed their trade unions, like Britain and Canada, is much less important. You know, much, employers don't have to listen to their workers in the same way. This is one of many things we can do that will make it possible for us to reclaim our focus from the people who've stolen it from us. Mm. I was so interested to read that part on right to disconnect because Ontario has passed legislation for right to disconnect. Yay. Uh, it's wonderful, but unfortunately, 
quite toothless uh, legislation. So it, it will be something to watch in coming months to see what this actually means for workers in this province and, and if other provinces in the country might adopt similar kind of legislation. So it is, it's definitely a fascinating conversation. Before we close, there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on. I wanted to talk a little bit about the media. Well, looking at the sort of global media coverage, I have noticed this trend. I believe it has a lot to do with sort of the influence of Twitter, which made me think a lot when I was reading the social media sections in your book. But that our coverage seems to be more simplistic, less nuanced, more driven by social media. Was that something that you think about as well? Oh. So much. And that was one of the things that really struck me when I was in Provincetown. Obviously, I didn't have any devices. I, did, I found out what the news was once every morning when I went and bought the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And that was the only news I got. I mean, obviously, people I knew would tell me more. And I was there during a lot of big news events. And I remember, for example, I was there when that maniac went into a newspaper in Maryland and shot, I think it was five people. And in normal times, what would have happened? is I would have got a text from one of my friends telling me about that. I would have gone onto social media and I would have pieced together roughly what was happening over three hours, right? Instead, I found out everything I needed to know about that in five minutes by reading an article in the New York Times. It was actually quite accurate. And suddenly, this, the technology of the newspaper, the very thing this gunman attacked, seemed to me like a very modern technology, actually. I thought, oh, what a clever idea to just summarize the news for people every, every day, right? But I think you're absolutely right that social media, the entire current business model of social media is built around one thing, which is to keep you scrolling. The longer you scroll, the more money they make. So their algorithms, all of their engineering, everything is designed around that one goal, keep you scrolling. And unfortunately, there's a psychological quirk of human beings it's called negativity bias. Anyone who's ever been on a motorway and you've seen a, or the highway and you've seen a, a car crash knows, knows how this works. You'll, you'll stare longer at a car crash than you will at the pretty flowers on the other side of the street, right? This is very deep in human beings. 10-week-old babies will stare more at an angry face than a smiling face. That's a quirk from our evolution because you know humans needed to look out for danger, right? And <laughs> it's pretty smart for our ancestors to be more alarmed by a risk than by the nice stuff. But online, when the algorithms select for that, it creates a horrific effect. So a study by the Pew Research Center found that for every word of moral indignation you add to your Facebook status updates, you double the likes and shares that those Facebook status updates will get. The most effective words for maximizing shares on YouTube are hates, obliterates, and destroys. Those are the words the algorithm promotes because they want to make their, product, their content engaging to keep you scrolling. And if it's enraging, it's engaging. That's created a sort of terrible situation where everyone is chasing this rage. Now, that happens at the level of teenagers. Picture two teenagers who go to a party. One teenager leaves the party and on the bus home says, that was a great party. Everyone was really lovely and they looked great. Another teenager on the same bus says, Karen looked like a hoe at that party and her boyfriend's a prick, right? Now, the algorithm will select to promote the second status update to far more feeds than the first because the second one is angering. It will engage people. They'll comment on it. They'll stay scrolling longer. Now, that's bad enough at the level of teenagers on a bus. Think about that at the level of a nation or the planet, right? You don't need me to remind you about the existence of Donald Trump. I don't want to uh, intrude on pain. But you're seeing this happen 
everywhere. This is one of the reasons why we're seeing such extreme and catastrophic polarization everywhere, right? And you can see it because it's happening in really radically different countries. Britain, Brazil, and Myanmar are as different as countries can be. It's happened to all three of them. It's happening everywhere. And you're absolutely right. One, this is, it's not just individuals who get coarsened and chase the rage. It then becomes news organizations become coarsened and chase the rage. And the important thing to understand is it doesn't have to be this way. Social media is currently controlled by a business model that maximizes rage, that is designed to invade your attention. It doesn't have, we don't, social media, we can have all the social media without that business model, right? Think about a good analogy from history. In the 1970s, it was very common for people to paint their homes with lead paint and most gasoline had lead in it. And then it was discovered that lead completely fucks up your ability to focus and pay attention. It's extremely, particularly for children. And so we banned lead in paint. You know, I'm in a room that's been painted. You're in a room that's been painted, just not with lead paint. We need to do something similar with social media. There are aspects of the way it works that absolutely destroy our and our children's ability to pay attention, but they're not inherent to the concept of social media. They're inherent to the current business model for social media. And we should just ban the current business model. And it'll have to move to another business model that's less harmful. I talk about how we could do that in the book. Mm-hmm. One of the signs, I think, of this sort of shallow thinking that comes with low attention is, is how conformist a lot of what of what we read right now is. Oh. There's there's so many stories that you can open up and you'll you can anticipate what the points are before they come. And I really made that connection reading your book that that is the shallow attention-deprived sort of way of thinking through issues that has led to that kind of writing, right? I think you're totally right. And a lot of our politics right now is, this is interesting, there's also interesting experiments that when you, this was research around speed reading. So you can train anyone to speed, almost anyone to speed read, to read much faster than they normally do. Humans can do it. But what happens is even professional speed readers who are the best people at it, you can read faster, but the result is that you understand less and you get what's called um, decreased depth of processing. You just become, you become drawn to much simpler arguments. When you're going really fast, you, you ignore complexity. And I think partly what's happened is there's partly the algorithms which are prioritizing anger and rage. There's partly just the sheer speed at which we're moving militates against reflection, against complexity, against depth. I think there's just real fear among journalists. And so a lot of our politics has become built around really catering to simplicity and low attention spans. This is one of my big worries. If people can't pay attention, that causes disasters at two levels, right? If you're an individual and you can't pay attention, you can't achieve your goals, everything in life becomes harder. But as a society, if we're a society of people who can't pay attention, that's even worse. That produces a real coarsening of the society. I do think it's one of the underlying reasons why we've seen Trumpism, why we've seen such rage, cancel culture on the left, Trumpism mm. on the right. I don't think those are morally equivalent, but I think Trumpism is significantly worse. But why we're seeing these phenomena, they're very short-termist, coarsened products of the algorithms and products of societies of people who can't actually think very clearly because we're thinking too fast and through such destructive methods. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. 
one of the things I loved about this book is, is how deeply thought it was. Oh, and I, I could feel myself kind of sinking into it. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Thanks, Tara. Mm-hmm. The, the, it's, it's funny. Sometimes people say to me, obviously, I traveled all over the world to write the book. And people say to me, why did you do that? You could have just spoken to everyone on Zoom. I try to explain to them that like, you get a thousand times less from people when you interview them on Zoom. But also, partly it's about gaining the thinking time, right? I would interview someone in St. Louis, Missouri, the one person I traveled to interview. And then I went to Montreal, right? And on the journey, I thought all the way through about the guy I'd met. And so there's something about travel that just gives you, if, you, if you're not jammed up with devices, gives you the space to think deeply about what you've just seen in a way that is much harder if I just sit in my home with the TV and all my books and my phone and all the stuff that's there to sort of distract me. So something about the, for me, the best way to go on an intellectual journey is to go on a physical journey mm. because it creates the mental space for the intellectual journey. That's a very pompous and pretentious way of putting it, but you know what I mean? So that was very, that's way more pompous than I normally am. I apologize to your listeners. No, no, I do know what you mean. And I also know that there, there's a quality to the writing in this book that is sort of slowed down and pulled out and it generated relaxation in me as a, as a oh, reader. I'm so happy to hear that. It was really beautiful. So I, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to congratulate you on the book. It is an optimistic book. It's one that could not be more timely. Oh, Tara, thank you so much for engaging so deeply and paying attention to the book. I don't mean that as a pun. And and for all your work, which I really appreciate. And congratulations on your Substack migration. It's so exciting. Thank you so much, Johan. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.